Bonjour à tous, hello and welcome to this special episode of the Cycling Podcast. My name is Sébastien Piquet, the voice of the Tour de France, as Richard would call me, I'd answer one of the voices, and oh how I wish I wasn't sitting behind this mic. When Daniel and Lionel asked me to be part of this episode, it came as a huge honor to be able to pay a tribute to Monsieur Richard Moore. Hello, Daniel Freeb. Hello, Seb. And yeah, you, you mentioned the choice um, of, of you as the host for this episode. We knew it was going to be a, a difficult episode to record and um, very raw. But of course, um, we decided to entrust that responsibility to the man known in professional cycling as the tearjerker. Um, infamous, notorious for inducing sobs out of riders who have just won stages at the Tour de France when you interview them. And hello, Lionel Burney. Hello, Seb. I mean, I'm just thinking Richard would be asking us why you're in the hot seat, Seb. Was Bernardino not available? You know, I mean, we've gone almost to the top of ASO, but um, yeah, I think uh, Richard would think it's a a very fitting uh, choice for you to ask us a few questions about our our work with Richard and our friendship with Richard. Indeed. Well, the the first time I met Richard was in Yorkshire around a dinner table at a restaurant. And actually, one of the last time I was with Richard was around a lunch table in the south of France, enjoying a a Côte de Boeuf and and some rosé wine. So today, sitting behind this mic, I think I'm going to uh, imagine myself behind a plate of of cassoulet or, or haggis with a bottle of of Croze Hermitage wine or, or a good old Belgian beer because I'm, I'm sure he would have uh, liked that um, probably. Indeed, he would, Seb. Um, needless to say, it's been uh, a very difficult fortnight for us, um, for everyone connected with the podcast. And before we go forward, we, we should just say an enormous thank you to everyone for their support and their messages um, over the past couple of weeks. And, and also... What an immense privilege it is for me and, and Lionel. You mentioned your privilege, um, Seb, but so many people knew Richard, were, were touched by Richard, and I think they've felt as though they could maybe condense or had to condense their feelings, memories of Richard into a tweet or a blog um, or, or an, a, an article. Um, we're very fortunate to have this podcast um, where we can talk more, in more detail about our memories of Richard and also the very future of the podcast that he created, he was the driving force behind, um, will in large part be dedicated to Richard. So um, we will be squeezing everything out of that opportunity, not only today, but going forward. What was it like the first time you um, you actually met Richard, uh, Lionel uh, and Dan? Well, Seb, the first time is... is difficult to uh, difficult to pinpoint um certainly richard did his first tour de france in 2005 and i guess it it would have been then and you know richard was someone who i think as we've heard from a lot of other people in the last couple of weeks was was very easy to get on with straight away um at, at back in 2005 i mean Lionel can confirm this we were a, a a small and very motley crew group of people who were covering the Tour de France for English-speaking media. And we, we forged bonds quite easily. Richard was relatively young for a journalist covering the Tour de France. I was even younger. And we struck up an, an immediate friendship, um, someone who was very funny, warm, had a great eye for a story, saw 
cycling and the tour in spite of his great passion for the sport in a, a sort of a, a light-hearted um, playful way that was I suppose similar to my way or our way of of conceiving the sport and um, yeah and consequently it was well certainly friendship at first sight from from my point of view. Yeah I'm not sure I could pinpoint the exact time that I first met Richard but I do remember one of those early tours would it have been 2005 or 6 and he was he was limping along wasn't he he was waiting a a hip replacement operation and um I suppose that kind of sticks in my mind. I don't know. I remember walking across one of the Tour de France press park, car parks. Uh, you know, it was a long way from where we'd parked our cars. And it was just one of those moments where all of the kind of, the, as you say, Daniel, this small gang of English speaking media, we all seemed to arrive in the car park at the same time and got out of the cars and then walked the 500 metres across to the, um, the press room. And, and I hung back with Richard. And it's probably the, that's the first time I really remember speaking to him. And, I'd been, you know, plugging away on cycling magazines. I'd started on local newspapers as a teenager. And I was just struck by how, with his kind of easy confidence of somebody who just knew what he was doing, knew what he stood for, knew why he was doing what he was doing, you know, he'd managed to sort of sail in and, and get kind of freelance gigs with national newspapers that were, you know, beyond uh, the, the types of papers and magazines that I was writing for at the time. And I thought, how's this guy you know, just sort of parachuted in a few years after me and yet uh, seems to be already off in the distance in a sort of, you know, where we were, you know, the, the types of organisations we were working for. And I think that just, it was that easy confidence. He was, you know, much more um, comfortable in small talk and conversation with somebody he didn't know very well. And that made me feel at ease. And I just immediately thought, yeah, this guy is all right. In, the, in like you say, Daniel, a small and, and sometimes slightly fractious world, especially when it was smaller and we all felt like it was our patch and our turf. And then there was Richard who sort of came in almost as a unifying force. And whilst we can't quite credit Richard for the boom in British cycling, we can certainly credit Richard for drawing together, drawing together. I think, you know, Dave Brailsford and co had possibly something to do with that. But we can definitely credit Richard with drawing together, not just the English-speaking media, but people from, well, the, Francois Tomaso, Seb, yourself, Chiro. I know, Daniel, you would have known Chiro um, before Richard, but he just managed to draw everybody in together and, and, and make us feel like, a, I guess, a travelling family in a way. And that was not how the English-speaking cycling media had been prior to Richard's arrival and I'm not crediting Richard entirely for that it did get bigger um, but it could have got bigger and, and become even more kind of competitive and fractious but um, I think just thinking over the years you know Daniel you and Richard tried to bring everybody together in a social sense and when you said about you know Richard seeing the sport as fun he saw the sport as fun and he saw the job of covering the sport as enormous fun and a great privilege. And uh, he certainly changed my perspective on a lot of things and, and definitely made me a much more sociable beast than perhaps I would be ordinarily. I mean, if I can just chip in there, Lionel, um, you know, I used the expression to someone um, a few days ago talking about Richard, that what he really created. And this was really referring to with the podcast later, um, which we'll go on to talk about the way he brought people in and created this enlarged 
family, but I use the expression that it was the sort of Federal Republic of Richard Moore, and he was the, the constitution and the institutions, and probably the head of state as well. And um, because he did have this gift for sort of federating people, um, bringing them together, that was certainly true. I mean, I also, you know, very early on remember and, and, and had first-hand experience, uh, something quite, sometimes quite bitter experience of his sort of devilish um, sense of humour, the, the kind of glint he always had in his eye. Um, I think it was the 2007 Tour de France. I was writing for the Daily, Te- um, the Sunday Telegraph, sorry. And um, Saturdays, consequently, because I would have to file my copy on Saturdays, were always fraught with anxiety for me. Um, had a real problem making the deadline on the Saturday night, and this was very important for me. Lionel mentioned the sort of prestige of the publications that Richard was writing for. Well, this was quite a new experience for me um, to write for the Sunday Telegraph. And 2007, you know, if you remember those years, they were they were thrilling, exhilarating years in one sense because you know we were we were following police cars with sirens wailing and riders were getting arrested on the finish line at the Tour de France. But in 2007, we got to the end. The Tour sort of limped towards Paris and it really did feel like in those years the Tour de France might stop altogether or it might have have to have a year off because um, it was so morally bankrupt. About three o'clock in the afternoon, I get a call from a gentleman who introduced himself as William Fox Pitt of the um, of the Sunday Telegraph, not the sports pages, but the news pages. Oh, Daniel, you know, we've been terribly impressed by what you've been doing on the tour. Absolutely marvelous, splendid stuff, and we'd like to feature in the main paper, not just the sports pages tomorrow. We're thinking a big splash, double page spread. Um, the story, the angle, Daniel, is um, we'd like we, we think doping should be legalized, and we'd like you to go and canvass some riders who agree with this sentiment um, I think you know there were probably 20 riders to come in on the time trial and I was already I was trembling and um, of course sort of deferentially I said okay Mr Fox Pit, I'll go out to the finish line now and tr- see if I can find some riders who will who will espouse this this great idea to legalize doping and um, you know any normal person or anyone with a slightly less devilish sense of humor would have would have maintained this gag um, for for five or ten minutes, but I think Richard let me stew for an hour or two, and then um, finally I think he did call me or someone else called me and said, "Look, William Fox Pitt is in fact Richard Moore." Can, can we publish that piece on the Cycling Podcast website at some point, Daniel? <laughs> Great story. Um, what people actually don't know necessarily is that Richard was a writer. Before being a journalist, before writing books, before the podcast, he was a, a writer and a damn good writer. Yeah, he was. And, he, you know, you would think with, you know, Richard's kind of buffalo spirit, he would have always been telling us about that. But he really kept his cycling prowess under wraps. Um, and, yeah, he inherited his interest in cycling from his dad, Brian, and got into the racing scene in Edinburgh and and wider Scotland and well on my wall behind me I've got uh, the Tour of Speyside leaders jersey from what year is that 1996 when he won the race and you know a really treasured item Richard's Scotland Commonwealth Games jersey from Kuala Lumpur in 1998 where he represented his country in the time trial and the road race um, those two jerseys have been in my possession since we did our live shows in 2019 prior to lockdown and uh, 
they were given back to me in a plastic bag because we used them as the backdrop on uh, on the stage some cycling jerseys we also had daniel's mapai collection and uh i kept those jerseys and then of course lockdown happened and richard then moved to france with his family and so i'd never had an opportunity to give them back to him um i obviously will return them to either brian or to richard's wife virginie because they're you know they're something that that maxime should have and and look after um but yeah richard was a very good rider and you know there's there's just the the jokey story about how he got uh, disqualified from the RAS in Ireland for holding on to a team car. But, I mean, he's, he maintains that he was already out of the race and he was just trying to get to the finish a bit quicker. But, I mean, everyone everyone's trying to get to the finish a bit quicker, Richard. That's the idea of the sport. Um, but he also rode the Pru Tour, the Tour of Britain in 1998. And just looking at the start list, you know, he was lining up alongside Chris Boardman and Stuart O'Grady in the GAN team. The Festina team, which was about to be you know, torpedoed by uh, the huge doping scandal at the Tour de France a couple of months later. The US Postal Service team and uh, Richard Moore wearing number 92 for Scotland. So, you know, that gives you an indication of the, the level of rider he was. And um, I think he realised that that racing, he wasn't going to make it as a professional. And uh, funnily enough, uh, last week I was up in Scotland. I might talk a bit more about that later on in the episode while I was up there. But I bumped into his, well, our colleague, Kenny Pride, who was working for Cycling Weekly back in those days. And I guess Kenny really gave Richard his break in cycling journalism because Cycling Weekly needed a new Scotland correspondent for the magazine and uh, Kenny asked Richard if he fancied writing something and so Richard for a period was reporting on Scottish cycling for the magazine and reporting on races that he was actually riding in. Now I haven't got any documentary evidence for this but it does tickle me that uh, you know there'd be a line in there somewhere saying and a very impressive 15th place for Richard Moore uh, leading in the, the chase group would sneak into his copy but I'm sure you know Richard had more integrity than that um, and I think at a certain point after the Commonwealth Games in 98 and at the start of 99, he realised that uh, the, the the career in cycling wasn't going to happen, but that there was this other pathway that he could see potential in. And, and obviously, you know, very quickly, um, he got himself established in journalism without any actual formal training. And I think that was the thing that really struck me was just how much he, when I met him, he'd been doing it for a few years, of course, but he just got what journalism was, you know, the process of asking questions um you know over a period of time peeling the way the layers of, of people and stories and issues and and piecing together what you found out and i was kind of coming at it much more with a sledgehammer in those days trying to crack the nut um but especially because the doping stories were so prevalent whereas richard's approach subtler no less hard really over time um but it really taught me that there are uh, more than one way to skin a cat so to speak and I learned so much from Richard in quite a quick and short period of time and it, it just subtly changed the way I worked and and probably without that the, the sort of alchemy of the podcast wouldn't have um, wouldn't have worked uh, you know I wouldn't have been um, quite the right cup of tea for um, for Richard with with my old approach and so I do owe Richard an awful lot he taught me as much about journalism as as um, as you did about small talk, I guess. I think I, like you, Lionel, absorbed a huge amount from Richard in terms of journalism, um, in terms of the way he conducted himself. I mean, 
in those years, so having met Richard in 2005, he and I very quickly almost well, we became pretty much inseparable for the next, um, well, seven or eight years. Um, he moved down to London um, in around about 2007, 2008. And we basically started working together. We were both freelancers, or we became freelancers, and we would work together every day at the London Library. And as I say, just were inseparable um he, he'd moved into a place in the, on the king's road it was the kind of scuzzy end of the king's road before anyone um worries what kind of stock richard comes from and it was a house he was sharing a house this is fairly typical of richard with uh, a guy a fantastic guy called peter Orr, who is this sort of fell running maverick jürgen klinsman doppelganger who richard had met because he'd been sent he'd been dispatched to interview peter Orr. And they'd ended up living in this flat on uh, King's Road. It was more probably the young ones than friends or made in Chelsea. Um, I remember going around once in about 2010, 2011. They used to have these house parties. And I remember going around once. And it wasn't, I, I don't want to give the impression that Richard was living in a hovel um, because he wasn't. It wasn't that bad. It's just that he was having this party and um, it, it wasn't exactly spick and span. And I decided that um, it probably needed a clean before people started started arriving. So I'd maybe been there half an hour or an hour and, and Richard turned around at a certain point and I either had the vacuum cleaner in my hand or a rubber glove on. And he said, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, well, Rich, you can't. You can't have people coming around like this. And I think he said something along the lines of, um, it's, a, it's a house party, not a dinner party. And... Um, <laughs> and um what probably probably while he was he was probably bashing out a you know fantastically crafted um piece on 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 a cyclist or or someone else at that point because that was the other thing about richard that i i noticed straight away is his incredible ability to focus you know a lot of the time you'd be trying to get his attention and he'd say richard 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 and you'd end up screaming at him because he was completely immersed in what he was writing this was something that I really envied him for. Um, and it came from a sense of, of enjoyment of, of him doing what he was kind of born to do, or I felt that he was born to do anyway. But yeah, those years, I mean, just so many, so many memories, um, so many stories, um, you know, a cycling holiday in, in Annecy with Ellis Bacon that was ruined by, I'd been, I'd broken my mobile phone and I was lent a Blackberry by, Christy Scrimmager, who used to be the press officer of HTC, and um, it had a, an alarm on it, um, which was the, the REM song, Night Swimming, and I couldn't deactivate this alarm, and it was going off every two hours in the middle of the night, keeping us all up, just night swimming, deserves a quiet night, couldn't have been more ironic. Um, times like that, and you know, I said we used to work together every day, we we worked in the London Library, and there was a, a, a Hollywood star who also worked there, Natasha McElhone, who was the who was the female lead in the series Californication, alongside David Duchovny, and um, she was extremely friendly. And one day she told me that I looked like a young Bob Marley, and um, yeah, this was the, the the source of constant mirth for for years. Um, yeah, I, I tried to convince Richard that she was flirting with me. Of course, she wasn't. But um, yeah, just just so many great stories, great memories of of, of those years. Constant 
conversations about cycling and women mainly because it was before Richard met Virginie, the love of his life, and um, constant angst, anxiety, just turmoil about women for endless years. Richard's attempts to woo these these women with the only dish that he had ever learned to cook, which was mango chicken, um, where every where the the mango and the chicken looked identical. They were cut the chunks were identical in shape. Um, size and um, I, I tried to I pled I pleaded with him, you know, to 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 vary his repertoire. Maybe that maybe this was why he wasn't luring these women that he had designs on. And um, but no, to no avail. It was always mango chicken. Yeah, as uh, I guess uh, on the other side of cycling publishing's great Berlin Wall, as it was at the time. Daniel, you were very much pro cycling. I was Cycle Sport and Cycling Weekly, and. And Richard kind of contributed to both. And I think that says something about uh, about him. You know, he was, he was sought after by both of these magazines and, and could be friendly with both sides. I'm not saying we were, you know, we weren't exactly um, opposed to one another, but there was uh, that competitive spirit between the, the two magazines. And, of course, Richard took his own... Um, path through, didn't he? And very quickly, you know, you say his first Tour de France, I think, was 2005... By 2008, he was working with Chris Hoy on Heroes, Villains and Velodromes. And again, that, that just kind of took me, took my breath a bit that, that he'd written a book as, uh, you know, detailed and accomplished as that about the, the, the first phase in British cycling's rise. And I suppose the first time I ever really had any kind of professional dealing with Richard was when he contacted me completely out of the blue and asked me to read the opening chapters of Sky's The Limit. I was com- I'm completely befuddled by this. Why? Why on earth would he want to um, want me to read it? And we had a really sort of constructive um, conversation on the phone. I was, I, I suppose, gave him a few pointers and just get to the story a bit quicker. You know, he he kind of, I think, bogged down in the the, the aspects of the story that he hadn't witnessed and hadn't covered, and and so I. I sort of just all I said was just you know get to the point where they basically say they want to go off and win the Tour de France that's uh, you know that's the most important bit um, I can't quite remember now um, that the order of of things but we were thrown together for the 2012 Tour de France by Edward Pickering who was deputy editor of Cycle Sport and he had asked Richard to join us in the car for the Tour de France that year and Ed, I think, came out a few days later. So Richard and I were sort of put together in this very nice chateau in somewhere south of Liège. And it was, you know, we were sitting having breakfast where they served the marmalade in little champagne flutes or, you know, champagne glasses. And, you know, it really was well to do. And I think he was slightly surprised that uh, Cycle Sports accommodation was this high end. But he took to it. I mean, he wasn't complaining. He really settled in. Uh, very comfortably and as we talked about in our recent friend special about the genesis of the podcast that was certainly where I um, was introduced to podcasting Daniel you and Richard and Ellis and others had done a podcast a few years earlier for cycling news and it was you know me being me I was very uh, skeptical reluctant Uh, but the opening weekend coincided with my birthday and the owner of the chateau had left a bottle of champagne in the room uh, in my room as a as a birthday gift and when we got back from the stage rich was like right let's get that open and then he pretty much just 
said, let's record a podcast. We'll put it on, we'll, you know, we'll do a cycle sport podcast. I mean, Richard was freelancing. He wasn't, you know, deciding editorial strategy or, um, you know, it, it was a, a little bit of a step beyond the boundaries of, of, of um, what a freelancer would uh, be expected to do, I guess. You know, establish a podcast in the name of the title that you're uh, working for. But we recorded this podcast. It was almost entirely terrible. Um, and then when we got up in the morning, you said you better work out a way to get that online. Of course, it was down to muggins here to work out how you get a podcast audio file out to the four or 500 people who eventually listened to it. And that was just, the kind of start. Just do it. Just get it up there. That, get it up there. That was exactly <laughs> it. Just, well, the, the other people get podcasts online. Therefore, it's possible. Therefore, you must know how to do it. Yeah, And that was the, as simple as that. That was a lot of his thinking. This is achievable. So how do we achieve it? And well, down to you to achieve it. Um, I was writing for the Sunday Times at the time. And, and as you'll know, Daniel, from working for a Sunday paper, the pressure kind of ramps up as you approach the weekend. And all of the ideas that have been pitched to you by the sports editor, or rather you've pitched to the sports editor, they fall by the wayside as you get through Wednesday and Thursday. And then everything's ripped up and started again pretty much on Saturday morning. And I remember the Bastille Day fell on a Saturday, um, the French national holiday, July the 14th. And it was a long stage across the south of France, 217 kilometres to Cap Dagd. And because of the holiday traffic and the weekend, we were all told, everyone in the Tour de France convoy was told, don't try and get on the auto route. You'll just get clogged up and you won't make the finish. So you, you, you should r- drive the whole course on the race route ahead of the, the tour. So we were in the car, I was sat in the back trying to write all my stuff for the Sunday Times. Wiggins was in the yellow jersey, David Miller had won the stage the day before, Mark Cavendish was a you know, potential winner of that Saturday stage. So my, uh, you know, my eyelid was twitching with the, the stress and nervousness of it all. You know, two broadsheet blank pages, sports editor calling every 40 minutes to ask what I'm doing, when the first bits of copy are coming, changing ideas all along. The stress levels in the back of the car were were ramped up and Richard was driving and he was absolutely loving this. And and, and I was sort of getting stressed. I need to get to the press room, need to get to the press room. And he'd just slow down, you know, in driving along the, the Tour de France route, slow down to sort of 30 kilometres an hour. I'd be going, no, we've got to get to the press room, got to get to the press room. Then, of course, my laptop ran out of battery. I was really starting to panic. And, of course, the, the more I panicked, the more Richard kind of um, teased me and, and uh, you know, I, I snapped basically snapped um and it went a bit quiet in the car and we got to the press room and I went and sat at my desk and I had furiously hammering away you know Richard not a care in the world because he's not got to write his piece until after the stage and you know enjoying the sun and the 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 rosé and the buffet but he came into the press room he brought me a plate of buffet and a glass of rosé and he just put his hand on my shoulder and said just write your mints and get it sent and I was there's just the tension just came down enough and um you know he'd spent all day sort of teasing and mocking me but when it came down to it um he had a a calming word of advice and and a bit of support and that meant the the world and that kind of I suppose two weeks into our stint in the tour sort of cemented a friendship really because he didn't really need to do that and I being absolutely honest probably wouldn't have done the same for him if the roles had been reversed so, so, so we heard about how the the, the cycling podcast started. Um, what was the idea behind that, and 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 with what ambition was it started? And also, um, what was Richard like 
when you were recording these episodes? I mean, we, I think Richard, perhaps even more so than me, realised that the the freelance um, gigs for print journalists were starting to get squeezed. Um, there were fewer opportunities. You know, as the sport grew, paradoxically, opportunities for freelancers kind of tailed off because the newspapers would send their staff writers to go and report the Tour de France. And, and so 2013 was a nervous time cycle sport magazine was uh, going through what we now know was the, the sort of the beginning of the end and they weren't convinced by sending both richard and i and there was a conversation where richard said to me something like i won't go if you don't get a gig You're like i won't go for cycle sport if you don't also get a gig and there was some doubt about my sunday times gig at the time because david walsh was going to go to the tour and so it was all very uncertain and we i i th- certainly felt nervous i thought this could be the end of the road as, as far as traveling at the tour de france goes but somehow richard just had this vision of if we can do a podcast and get a sponsor for it which basically would be enough to pay our expenses we can then supplement with some freelance work here and there and make it work and i don't think he thought we would build something that would you know sustain this long and become as big as it did and has but he definitely had the idea of what's the goal and he and he always worked with purpose and so the goal was to try to get around the tour de france cover it for the podcast giving the podcast the sort of prominence and and the time um and putting most of our energy into creating this um new thing and can we do that without having to fund it too much ourselves? Now, we did fund it ourselves in some ways. You know, the sponsorship we got initially didn't cover the cost of travelling around the Tour de France. So, um, and there was a sort of unspoken commitment, really. We never sat down and said, I'm in for what you're in for. You know, we just we just did it. And I can remember it was the two of us, and very right from the start, he was absolutely... Um, adamant in his conversation with me about how we would make it work he said and and Daniel should be the third person now I don't know whether he was having similar conversation with Daniel and saying and Lionel should be the third person <laughs> but he definitely pieced it together and and, and similar he... conversation with Seb saying we'll get you involved one day yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the first episode as we've talked about was recorded in a, a London park on Richard's iPhone he press record you know the, the big red button I mean primitive equipment really phones now are very good at recording audio but we were using this thing like a sort of handheld mic and I can just see him sort of holding it to his mouth and talking and then pointing it at Daniel and then pointing it at me and and somehow we've we developed this relationship that just sort of worked but I still wasn't convinced that 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 you know it had any legs and it wasn't really until we got midway through that tour that I saw that there was something in this but he definitely had a sort of again an easy confidence you know, he, he wanted to capture what the Tour de France sounded like. I mean, you guys, Seb, I think you asked Lionel there about a vision. Um, maybe this is contradicting slightly what Lionel's just said, but I'm, I'm, I was never actually sure whether there was a vision with Richard or certainly the genesis of it. And I, I think that one of Richard's great skills and one of the things that Lionel and I envied him for um, 
at times was his ability to be in the moment and just to knock over the obstacles as they as they came at him and um, I think he was in the moment when we started the podcast of well he, he was just immersed in the enjoyment of what you know whether it was that day's podcast or just the next day stage the next Tour de France and um, you know I was listening to something the other day um, well one of the key differences between Lionel and I and Richard was <laughs> one thing we often mentioned on the podcast was football and we're both ardent football fans fervent football fans Richard was not and yeah I was listening to something the other day someone asked to explain why it is that football captivates people to to the extent that it does and it got me thinking and it got me thinking about the yearning the hoping the fantasizing I mean I, I go through my weeks kind of fantasizing about how my team might play at the weekend and um it got me thinking that maybe this is symptomatic of people who aren't very good at living in the moment and are always kind of hoping that reality is going to change in a certain way. And and I don't think Richard Richard was was like that. I think Richard was um, generally gave the impression of someone who was was not hoping. He was enjoying. He was relishing. He was savoring, cherishing. And um, I, I sort of rather than any kind of long term vision, I always felt that that's the way it was with him and the podcast. Um, you know, he used to talk about um, wanting to do this for as long as it was possible, um, and this meaning the podcast or s- cycling journalism. Whereas, um, you know, both Lionel and I have definitely had our moments of, well, certainly turmoil and existential uh, angst and questioning. Um, you know, which is not to say that we're any, any less passionate about cycling and what we do, but um, Richard was not was not susceptible to the same type of self-interrogation i would say yeah i i agree with that and i I don't think it is a contradiction because um his horizons were sort of you know he'd have a uh he'd almost have sort of bifocal glasses on he could see the immediate but he could also see into the future and and um you know think about where things might go i remember a crucial moment actually after that tour because daniel you left the tour 2013 after a couple of weeks didn't you i think you had to head home to finish a book i had to finish a book yeah and so it left um richard and i to do the final week together and we got a kind of cast of other characters from the press room involved off the top of my head matt bowden Bello News, Kaylee Fretz, I think, would have been on as well. Um, Anthony Tan, I think, would have been on. Um, and there were others. And we'd had this sort of rolling cast of people coming into this fledgling thing. You know, re- really uh, p- properly respected journalists as well, some of the national newspaper writers as well, who, for whatever reason, thought, yeah, I'll, I'll go on that and talk about cycling for 20 minutes. And... I do remember after the tour, you were still finishing the book and, you know, concentrating on that. And we saw some social media responses. Um, Please carry on, do a weekly show or do the Vuelta or or whatever. And Rich was like, yeah, we should carry on. We should try and strike while the iron is hot. And we managed to secure a bit more funding from Sharp, who had sponsored us through that uh, first Tour de France. And when you said, oh, well, I can't do this because I've got to concentrate on the book, Richard just said, well, we'll find a way. And we asked Orla and Orla came on the next couple of episodes and we just kept the ball rolling uh, long enough. Then you came back in and it was that sort of also that gradual kind of coaxing that Richard was very good at. I mean, I said to somebody yesterday that if Richard was the buffalo, Daniel, you and I are a little bit like trying to herd cats sometimes. You know, we've got to be sort of put in position, um, shown where the bowl of 
cat food and the bowl of water are and, and you know, have them pointed out to us. And Richard was so patient at doing that, really. Okay, the patients frayed at times when we were being impossible in our own unique ways. But again, that unifying thread of just, I'm going to stand here and this is what I'm going to do and others will gravitate and realise that I'm, I'm, I'm basically, I'm right. And more often than not, that, how I felt um, my relationship with Richard was that I would, it would take me longer to get to the same conclusion, but I'd invariably realise that Richard was uh, heading in the right direction. Yeah, so, so Lionel, I just heard you uh, mention the buffalo. When did that start? When did that uh, name the buffalo, uh, when was it pronounced for the first time concerning Richard? Well, Daniel is the one that comes up with all the nicknames, uh, but as soon as he said it, it stuck, like all good nicknames do. Um, for very good reason, really. Richard, uh, well, he, I suppose it conjures up images of a bull in a china shop, I suppose. There's an, an element of that. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, Richard would be sort of stampeding off um, off alone and, and all, you'd find him by the sort of trail of broken crockery. It, 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 but it was an enthusiastic storming off, really, wasn't it, Daniel? I mean, you, you coined the nickname, so maybe you should explain yeah, I mean, it was the the buffalo, and then became to those those of us who knew him even better. Often, it was just the buff. Um, and I mean, like as Lionel says, he was a buffalo in in ballet shoes, also in the sense of you know the way he the way he he hosted the podcast as well. Um, you know, picking his way between our respective strengths, weaknesses, vulnerabilities with a sort of light light touch light hooves um you know unerring but indefatigable um you know that struck me listening uh, i i've i've had to over the last few days i've started preparing something we'll do um another kind of tribute to richard during the the giro um in a, in a few weeks and i've been listening back to some clips and that really you know struck me about his his hosting as well um you know the light touch the sort of suppressing submerging of his own ego or whatever he wanted to say to often to in, indulge um to indulge us i mean i've actually listening back to the podcast um i've actually realized for the first time perhaps why people ever listen to the podcast it should i've never really understood before but you know you can hear the um hear the, the, the i suppose the chemistry between the three of us and and yeah Richard was absolutely key as the sort of master of ceremonies there um and, and in terms of you know how unerring he was it, it could be quite intimidating I mean Lana you mentioned this sort of prodigious precocious trajectory they'd been on with his career and that was down to talent that was down to ability um it was a, a, a down to his his ability to master the very different and the very numerous aspects of journalism, um, you know, whether it be writing, whether it be cultivating relationships, maintaining relationships. Um, and, and he had a very deft touch at that. Um, you know, personally, I, I said that Richard and I were extremely, extremely close um, for many, many years. And, you know, I suppose, unfortunately, when the podcast started, it kind of coincided with a, a a time when um for me personally i i almost tried to ape richard for many years tried to imitate him mimic him you know writing lots of books and being as prolific as him and, and it just hadn't worked for me at all um i'd 
I just couldn't function in that way. Um, it was very detrimental to me, my health, and, and so on and so forth. And I, I, I sort of, you know, had a, a big pivot um, in, in my own life as I moved to Berlin and um, kind of went monk and went very sort of minimalist, stripped down kind of relationships and, and so on and so forth. And Rich and I had a couple of petty um, petty disagreements as well. But, you know, these things, they're always sort of paper cuts that reveal um, under which um, lie deep insecurities on, on my part and and you know there was unfortunately a, a kind of a bit of a, a drift and and part of that was also due to um how, how I couldn't couldn't really keep pace with the buffalo at times um he had this enormous capacity um for work for friendships for enjoyment for expressing that enjoyment and um and 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 passion which I sort of didn't have but you know in spite of that I say that you know not because I want to make this about about me but um in spite of that in spite of the kind of cooling in our relationship and the awkwardness that that created at times you know when we got together and I think people heard in the podcast and we still did have that great connection that great chemistry that's that a very similar way of, of of seeing the sport as we all did the three of us um we really kind of riffed well together um particularly when we're away at the at the grand tours and so on and also you know richard was so generous and so tolerant um within that that context um in the way that he did he 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 didn't necessarily necessarily understand what lionel and i were were going through at certain times or why we might have veered from what he saw as as the path that we should tread but he always he always tolerated it and he always created space he always he always allowed us to do that and and he tried to bring us in all the time i mean i remember how profusely grateful and and complimentary he was um you know when we did our our giro for example a couple of years ago during the covid um lockdown and i sort of come up with this idea of our giro and you know and it was a, a collaborative effort as everything we did you know really was um, but he 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 was so profusely sort of complimentary about my role in that, and and I that was it was I guess an effort to sort of to reel me in, lasso me back in at times, and and you know that was that was a thing. Whenever whenever he could, um, he was he was so magnanimous towards me again as a kind of acknowledgement of the friendship we 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 had had, and we still had to a certain extent, but it wasn't the same. But, um, you know, I've been, I guess I've been thinking a lot about that in, in the last couple of weeks, um, you know, about how the, the relationship had changed, but the, the love and the affection was still very much there. You mentioned the pace that Richard would work at. And I've said to you, Daniel, over the last week or so that working with Richard was like going hiking with a giant. You know, he'd be he'd have the map, obviously. And, and before I'd even put my sandwich in and flask in my rucksack, he'd be you know, paces ahead of me with his great big strides. And then he'd be at the top of the first summit, you know, shouting over his shoulder, beckoning me to hurry up. Come on, look up here. The view's amazing. And then as soon as I get to the top of that summit, he's already halfway down, heading towards the valley, you know, with his eyes set on the next summit. And and that was a huge, a huge strength for the podcast because, Daniel, you wrote very movingly the the, the the announcement when Richard passed away and, and the phrase that stuck in my head was that uh, if it had been left to the pair of us, we'd still be hovering over the record button, you know, nine years later. Richard, he just had a vision to get started, get on with it, let's do it. And 
and we kind of did run to keep up at times and I think sometimes I felt that he was somehow impervious to the the stresses and strains and nerves I particularly think of the live events you know he would always go right well we did four live events last year let's do six now let's do it you know we did an 11 night um, run of shows and he was so enthusiastic and and up for those shows every night we learned so much on the road we tweaked and changed what we were doing I think we we got better at it as as the weeks went on and I remember one night in Dublin I was absolutely beset by nerves I mean would be nervous anyway but I was really in bits and um, they could see I was struggling this was all at, at Francois and Richard I was just struggling to get my head around it I don't know why I was particularly nervous on that night and I sort of snapped at Richard and said oh it's all right for you you don't get nervous and he said I do get nervous I'm nervous now but I'm trying to channel those nerves in a in a um, you know in a way that will help me and, uh, and so I went out in a again a bit of a stomp went to the loo or what have you and when I when I came back into the dressing room I couldn't see them anywhere. I thought, God, where have they gone? Have they gone on without me? And I'm sort of in a bit of a panic, in a bit of a panic. And the three of them were hiding in the little shower room in the theatre dressing room. And they burst out on me and nearly gave me a fright. And it just, the nerves just emptied. And whoever instigated that, you know, I'm sure they uh, came up with it themselves and just thought it was a prank to play on me. But it totally diffused the, the knot that I'd got myself into. And... It's things like that that I will miss more than, you know, we can talk till midnight about Richard's talents as a journalist, his effortless writing. that, And it was effortless because he worked at it and he focused on it and he wanted it to uh, be as good as it could be and he enjoyed it. You know, his grace as a podcaster, his generosity to us and everyone else who's been on the podcast, but it will be his friendship that I miss um, the most. And I wanted to talk about what I've been doing since... Richard passed away just to, just briefly because as some listeners will remember I'd planned this crazy cycling tour in Scotland to go and cycle between all of the Scottish football clubs last year and Simon Gill and I got up to Gretna last June and I was in a pretty poor state of mind and um, realised overnight that I just couldn't go through with it. I had uh, a lot on my plate, my dad had been in hospital, lots going on. Richard had been very kind of supportive and saying, you know, go do it, get on the road, you know, just use the cycling as a, as a therapy, you know, ride through it kind of thing. But I just knew when I woke up in the morning after a terrible night's sleep that I wasn't strong enough to do that. And I was worried about letting Richard down, the podcast down. I'd spent money that we wouldn't recoup. And although we're a three-way, equal three-way split on the podcast, we all own it equally there's a sense of responsibility to one another. And I felt that especially keenly with Richard. There, there was something about him that made you want to, made you want to get those words of praise that uh, Daniel was talking about with um, our Giro. It made you want to do the best for him as much as for yourself. And so I called in a bit of a, um, bit of a, uh, well, state of worry and anxiety. I called Richard and David Luxton, our agent, and just said I couldn't go through with it worried that he would say no you've got to do it press on but he didn't he said look don't worry it doesn't matter get yourself home and over the course of the rest of last year it's only really now that I realized this the work the the care the patience um, he put into helping me piece myself back together he said come to the Tour de France for a few days 
even if you don't want to be on the podcast just come and have a few meals with Francois and I drive the car so I can ride my bike um, and so I agreed to do that and I, I did go on the podcast and I felt better for that and then he encouraged Lizzie Banks well he encouraged me through Lizzie Banks to go and cover the women's tour which at the time I wasn't really feeling robust enough to step that far out of my comfort zone and he asked Lizzie to ask me and with sort of her bounding enthusiasm she did she said come on come on the women's tour with me and Rose it'll be great and then when I mentioned it to Richard he kind of feigned surprise but I know Richard had put Lizzie up to it and he did that because he thought that if he asked I might say no or or, or just not be as receptive to the idea and so we rescheduled our tour of Scotland to kick off on April the 1st which was the Friday after Richard passed away on the Monday and uh, I would like to say that there was, or I feel that I ought to say that I was in two minds about going, but actually I wasn't. Once I'd spoken to lots of people close to Richard and to Richard's wife, who all encouraged me to get on the road and go and do the first part of the Tour de Cosse, Simon and I set off and we had a an incredible week of grieving, really, remembering Richard, talking about Richard, but also riding in a kind of comfortable silence because Simon and I know each other so well. And that's been, that's the podcast. That's because of the podcast. I couldn't have gone and done that without the cycling podcast and without Richard. And um, we'll pull ourselves together and put that series out late in the year. And it, it, that's my tribute. On a lighter note, um, I think it might be interesting for the listeners to understand what it, what it, what it's like um to be in a car with Richard Moore because being in a car and traveling and going from the start of the stage to the finish, the start of the race to the finish of a race, that was uh, a big part of, of Richard's uh, career, life career. So what, what was it like being in a car with, with Richard? Was he the bus? Was, was he the buffalo? Was he the boss? Um, does the Pope have a balcony? Um, yes, uh, certainly... Well, he was the driver, the DJ, navigator. I mean, Lionel, I think you've travelled more with him over the last few years. Yeah, I mean, the DJ, well, I mean, Buffalo FM, I called it, um, because he dominated the stereo. Francois, of course, you know, he's a sort of an encyclopedia of music, but even Francois deferred to Richard's choices. I know, Daniel, you've got very specific views on Richard's musical taste, but he would... You know, a grand tour. Wailing, miserablest well, indie. Well, it's funny. I mean, Tom Wally, our producer, who's producing this episode, um, also produces Huey Morgan's Six Music show for the BBC. And uh, there was a tribute on the Saturday after Richard passed away. And Virginie selected the track. It was a Sigur Ross track. And um, Tom Wally, T-Bone, um, organized all of that and there was a little mention of buffalo fm in there and the thing was richard was he just judged the mood of the car the mood of the day right sometimes we'd have a podcast and he exposed me to so many different podcasts on all sorts of things comedy um, different ways to tell stories politics news current affairs he was an an information sponge richard really and he absorbed so much from so many different sources and i think when you know it's a bit like the great film and book reviewers you get to know what they like and you get to know if 
that person likes that thing then if you like the same sorts of things that's the kind of the the ultimate recommendation and there was a sort of mark of quality in anything Richard recommended certainly when it came to books or films or I'm not sh- podcasts not, yeah not not so much the music not maybe not in music but he just judged the mood with the music you know we sweeping or, or food or wine <laughs> Oh no, he was, he was, he was decent, at, decent at food. He just looked at the price and ordered the most expensive thing. Um, the the music, yeah, he picked the soundtrack for the tour every year, and every, every year I select a few things and, and add them to my uh, Spotify playlists. And yeah, if we needed to be a bit more upbeat, he'd put on something that would raise the spirits a bit. But I uh, just will always remember the kind of looking out of the passenger window at the at France going by and the soundtrack selected by Richard or Richard's playlists um, will will play on. Um, but in terms of being in the car, there was just always the sort of rhythm of the day, the kind of the nervous apprehension and excitement, I guess, of getting to the start on time, making sure we're in the right place at the right time, all going off on, in our separate ways around the team buses or the mix zone, and then coming back and sharing the gossip and stories we've got. And invariably, he always had more gossip and more stories and, and more ideas. And I suppose in the Grand Tour coverage, the front seats of that car with Francois in the nest are the editorial meeting room where we're discussing ideas. And the one thing that I've only really come to realise recently is Richard never dismissed something as a bad idea. I can never remember him saying, no, I don't think we should do that. He would just subtly, maybe not immediately, but perhaps a bit later, suggest a way to improve it or tweak it or why don't we do that story but from this direction and I suppose that echoes the generosity of spirit you were talking about Daniel and why collaboratively we all brought something different to the podcast and he was so so positive about ideas and and enjoyed discussing ideas and so that's going to be the bit that will be difficult to replicate at the Tour de France. I'm not saying that Francois and I can't have the same conversations, but it, it there won't be that dynamic. There won't be the person just to give the stamp of approval. Yes, let's make that. Let's do that interview. Let's put that out today. Um, or have the grace and the kind of confidence in his own work and his own ability to go and say to me, no, you're right, let's not do that. Because that's equally important in a collaboration. And he just had that in I keep saying easy confidence but but that was how he worked and what it was like in the car not saying there weren't stressful moments you know wrong turns um he'd always blame the navigator um quite rightly and uh you know he'd grip the steering wheel this is bullshit when things weren't going quite right um but there was you know that was kind of kept in perspective as well just just on the food if I can interject quickly um one of the things I'll miss about Richard on Grand Tours is knowing at any time of the day what he'd had for breakfast because he'd still have half a croissant hanging off hanging off his cheek. Um, and that's a joke I can make. I can make in good conscience because he used to make it about himself. He had a real... He had a, a real difficulties getting pastries into his mouth. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Particularly difficult with the tour where it's pastries every day. So Richard's been all around Europe on cobbles, on Grand Tours, uh, etc. But what was actually his his favourite race? I mean, I think 
as Daniel said, Richard's ability to be in the moment, his favourite race was the one that he was at or watching at any one time, really. I mean, and he, this family he created meant that all of the races that he went and covered, he had these different experiences, whether it was um, Daniel and Richard at the Giro or me, Francois and Richard at the, the Tour or Orla and Rose at the Women's Tour. Uh, he created these little satellite families that then when they all came together again unified by Richard and I suppose the other thing is Richard lived with so much purpose and he invested meaning in the things that he was doing and so if he decided something mattered to him then it mattered to other people around him one great example I think recently he spotted that Primoz Roglic and Jonas Vingegaard were going to be on the start list of the Grand Prix Danan. You know, a, a small race that's normally just a kind of a B-list warm-up race for the cobbles. Um, but because there are cobbles in the Tour de France this year, gained uh, perhaps a little bit of extra significance. And of course, once Roglic was on the start list, Richard decided he had to go. So he applied for accreditation the day before the race and went and that, was his favourite race that day. You know, that's how he lived. It was what was in front of him at the, the at any given time was what he was fully immersed in and, and what he was sucking as much out of and, and learning as much about. And so, yeah, he just loved watching the races, talking about the races. And then once the races were done, he loved dinner time. So his favourite part of the Tour de France or the Giro was, you know, dinner time or... Do you know what I mean? That was just, that's what I struggle with a little bit because I have a bit more of a sort of tunnel vision way of looking at things. And I, I suppose, you know, much to my sort of embarrassment, I suppose, I count down the days on a grand tour a bit because I see it as a as almost an obstacle to get through. You know, we've got, we've done today, we've got four more kilometre zeros to do, chalk one off. And Richard just didn't live like that. And I think my my response to... Richard passing away is going to try is going to be to try to be a bit more like the buffalo and and look at life and work with my head up a bit more because it looked a lot more fun his way well we've talked a lot about it haven't we Lionel um the the spirit of the buffalo and trying trying to to channel that um going forward I mean we'll talk about that a bit in a, in a minute um how we're going to carry for, forward Richard's legacy um you know you talk about favorite races Seb one thing that Lionel and I and probably listeners as well had really noticed and seen over the last couple of years was how he'd really fallen back in love with cycling with riding his bike um, he'd, he'd moved to France and, and that gave him the opportunity to ride a lot more and and um again there was this really sort of throbbing passion for for that and um it it, it it started really with our Giro and he, he got back on the turbo trainer and I sort of tortured him by setting these impossible courses on our Giro. But he'd, again, he was so grateful for that as well. He sort of credited me, you know, wrongly, um, unjustifiably, but with having reignited his passion in cycling, I think that was always his destiny, that it was his first love and it was going to be his, his last love. Um, you know, he was out riding his bike um, in, in Belgium a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, his sort of final ride was on the the cobbles and over the bergs of, of Flanders. It's of scant comfort, but to, to know that, um, you know, he, he did sort of go out 
riding. Um, but we, in a few weeks, we'll have to go through the Giro and um, we will be very determined to honour that spirit, but we will miss him hugely. We'll miss him greatly. Um, last year at the Giro, um, he and I had a fantastic time. And, I, you know, I mentioned earlier on the sort of changing of our relationship and how, um, you know, this was a source of some angst for me and possibly for him as well, although we never really spoke that openly about it. But, you know, I went into the Giro last year knowing that I'd be with Richard the whole time slightly... Um, slightly tentative because of that and and wondering how we were going to get on but we had an absolutely fantastic time at just a wonderful adventure and you know one of the the mornings one of the days I'll remember most fondly was when I sort of um I frog marched him off to do this this climb we were going to run up this climb the Via Scanupia which is one of the the steepest roads in Europe a preposterously steep mine shaft of 45 percent and Kind of typically, we, we'd been staying at this lovely place just outside Rovereto. We'd had a gorgeous meal with Brian Nygaard the previous night, and we were up at the crack of dawn off to to go and do this thing. And I was trying to explain to him, you know, why it would make a good a good segment. And as you say, Lionel, he went with it as he always did. And you know, I remember on the way, and this unfortunately this was a bit of a theme of the last few years for all of us as well. We we spent the journey about a twenty minute journey, sort of. Um, hand wringing about someone who'd misinterpreted a message on or a post on Twitter. I I posted a, a picture the previous evening of a fan in a Primoz Roglic jersey, um, uh, a Primoz Roglic Jumbo Visma Slovenian champion jersey. And this was just a, a, a kind of middle-aged fella riding his bike um, to go and see the Giro. And Bernal had been dropped that day and I'd posted something on Twitter like, oh, that's the last thing he needed, i.e. Primoz Roglic turning up. And this had been completely misinterpreted or and people had, had assumed that I was making, I was poking fun at this guy because, of he, because he had a slight, you know, paunch. Um, it wasn't that at all. I, it was... It was merely a comment on the jersey, and um, you know, Richard and I, and, and you as well, Lionel. We spent a long, a lot of time over the years, over the last few years, too much time, um, sort of maligning the way people would would cherry pick the most uncharitable possible interpretation of things that we sometimes write on social media. Um, anyway, off we went to this to this climb and um, yeah we had a we had a fantastic morning couple of hours it made a nice little segment for the podcast and you know it was just typical of the adventures that that we all have had the pleasure and had the privilege of enjoying on the Grand Tours and you know it's been an incredible seven eight nine well it's it's 11 years now since we started the podcast and we've had so many of these adventures and so many of the stories and memories will come to us um, over then will come back to us um so probably when we're least expecting them over the last sorry over the next few weeks months years and Richard I'm sure imagined that he was going to do another lap of these um well, last nine years or another two laps he was going to do it all again and, and once over um a third time um that's not going to be the case but you know what one really comforting thing in the last couple of weeks has been the way Lionel and I have been well instantly instinctively unified in just knowing exactly what we needed to do to honor Richard's legacy or knowing what we wanted what we've wanted to do to honor Richard's legacy and as I said at the start of the podcast that's going to be a very long-term thing it's not one episode or one Giro d'Italia it's going to be um, the future of the podcast and you know you as listeners we'll see that we're 
Um, you'll see, for example, the the logo of the podcast change um, in the in the next couple of weeks to to um, give a little nod, a permanent nod to Richard, our our founding father, and you'll see it in lots of other ways as as well. But you know, the bottom line is that we're going to miss him um, immeasurably. I think also the the. I mentioned the family that Richard was instrumental in building up. I mean, I couldn't have done that, but he brought in people from very different directions. And if they got what the Cycling Podcast is, they've they've joined the family and added to it and just, you know, grown it. And I think that gives us a tremendous chance, really. Um, I think the Cycling Podcast wouldn't be what it what it has become if it was just Richard, Daniel and myself, would it? It was um, it was the wider family, it was the other shows that we've we've added and um, and Richard's been the driving force with that. And so we will draw on that over the next weeks, months and years and, and as I said, try to continue things in the way that Richard would have wanted them to continue in. And that's going to take a a, 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 um, a a slight tweak to my personality at times, I suspect. But um, we are gonna we are gonna try our damnedest to do that. And just while I'm mentioning, you know, the sort of the mechanics of the podcast, I do also want to mention um, the kindness and support of our sponsors because the cycling podcast also wouldn't be what it is without the support of commercial partners who help fund what we do um and richard really was the the leading figure in those relationships again a, a lot more easy company uh, than i am perhaps at times um strikes up a rapport with people more quickly over the years has um, developed relationships with past sponsors and advertisers that endure to this day um you know we, we, it's not a case that people we've worked with in the past you know suddenly kind of uh, know dropped and forgotten once they're no longer supporting us financially but i do want to particularly thank our current sponsors our title sponsors super sapiens our longest serving um, supporters science in sport and our most recent partners map the clothing company based in melbourne who all got in touch with their shock deep sadness and sincere condolences and most importantly for daniel and i their offer of help support and most importantly patience as we piece things back together and uh, i just wanted to thank everybody there um and also audio boom our hosts who are not putting any pressure on us to stick to any schedule we'll we'll return the way we see fit as we can and lionel just from me to finish on a bit of a story actually um we talked there in about the, the imperative to keep the podcast going. Um, unfortunately, one of my last interactions with Richard um, turned out to be, well, the, the, the following, the the last podcast, the last weekly, weekly podcast we ever did was fairly typical in the sense that I was um, scrambling around, floundering, trying to find headphones. And, you know, this was a sort of cliche that had been repeated for several weeks um, since I'd come back to Berlin um, from the UK in uh, Christmas, I've, I've um, not been able to not been able to locate my headphones. Um, anyway, this had caused some issues during recording, 
And after the podcast, I got a message, or after the podcast that week, I got a message from Richard on WhatsApp um, asking me to remind him of my address. I thought it was probably some invoice I hadn't sent or some piece of admin I hadn't taken care of. Um, However, I think on the Friday of that week, we recorded on the Monday, so on the Friday, um, I got delivery notice. I'd missed a delivery um, from DHL, and then it finally arrived on the Saturday and I went downstairs in my apartment block and I found a package from Amazon sticking out the letterbox. And it was some nice Bluetooth headphones, which I am wearing now. Um, I said that that was on Saturday. Well, Richard was away at Ghent with Avalgum at the weekend, or that particular weekend. And on the Sunday, I think I sent him a message um, to say, Rich, just to check that it was him. And um, I said, Rich, was it you that sent those headphones? And he didn't actually have time to reply I thought it might have been my girlfriend back in the UK um, and yeah um, I've almost in the last couple of weeks taken that as a message a symbol um, to to remind me not that I um, would have wavered or will waver but uh, uh, to remind me that I need to to uphold his legacy carry on with the podcast and um, yeah do it in We'll do it with a pair of serviceable headphones. And so you will. So you will with his enthusiasm, smile and cheekiness. We will, Seb. And, and just just finally, um, we'd like to thank you for well accepting this, this honour, as you called it today. But it's been a, a difficult job. Um, and, and you were very good friends with Richard as well. And um, yeah, it, it means a lot to Lionel and I to have you here today. We're going to hear from the Cycling Podcast Feminine team shortly. Orla Shenoui and Rose Manley hosted the Cycling Podcast Feminine with Richard. But like so many things, Richard was the driving force behind the creation of the Cycling Podcast Feminine back in 2016. And he pitched the idea to Orla and then added Rose around 18 months later. But before we hear from them, some other members of the Cycling Podcast family wanted to pay their tributes too. We're going to hear first from Chiro Scognamilio, Francois Tomazo, Tom Wally and Lizzie Banks. My friend, I'm obliged to start in this way because uh, every dialogue between me and you, Richard, started in this way. My friend, friend is not a simple word as... Uh, so many others. Friend is not a word chosen by chance. Friend means friend. Friendship. Two souls that stay well together with links, things in common, as for example, the same love for sport and life. And Richard, you have been a marvelous soul. Marvelous. Maybe for this reason, you are not physically on this earth any longer. Maybe the sky already needed you, but but it has been too early, too early, Richard. Also me, but especially your family, the podcast, all the cycling community. We still needed you here among us and since i knew the news 
a huge sadness and the impossibility to believe in this has been together with me and they are still with me all these feelings but now as a matter of fact i think uh, it's not longer the time of sadness because now there is a new goal uh, i have this goal and as me for all who have the privilege to know you it's the same i'm sure it's something about your legacy richard you have teach it to all of us how to be a giant in journalism but not only simply in life and your legacy will be always with me will be my lighthouse richard and do you know what i mean always i will never forget a dinner in an hungarian restaurant in london or the back the backstage in a theater in arrogate or a promenade of 112 for example obviously talking not about cycling but about holidays richard my friend you will be forever my friend hi rich this is a glass of wine it's not nice it's not very nice it's not very tasty at all it's quite tasteless to be honest but i want to raise it to you to us look at it it's not nice it's red the darker it gets the more alcohol you can expect the lighter it is the more fruit you will feel strawberry cherry banana name it stir it like i do in your mouth and feel the aftertaste of coffee chocolate honey is it burned is it wooded tell me i'm not stupid but somehow i'm sure i'm convinced that you're listening to me and now you have plenty of time to work on your wine tasting I've always been surprised how someone who could so well describe the subtleties, the intricacies of bike racing, a man with so much insight, with all the right words to tell the tale of something so complicated, could not find a way to describe a great class of wine. Yet I know why that was. It was because as a man so gifted at listening, caring, leading, boosting, enabling, you knew that all that stuff about wine was bullshit. What you knew, what is true, is that wine is not for crying. Wine is not for whining. Wine is for endless laughs, endless talks, endless friendship. That's what wine is about. Here's to you, Richard. Cheers. So this is about the fourth or fifth time I've sort of sat down to record my thoughts about Rich. Um, the last time I did it, I started talking and then I looked down at my phone and I'd done 12 minutes, which, and I'd barely scratched the surface, which tells you all you need to know, really. What I want to say about Rich is how thankful I am that he was in my life. He, he was in my life for a longer time than he knows, because before I knew him, I'd read his books and I'd heard his voice on the podcast. But through 
knowing Rich, and I think this is going to be something that's repeated again and again in the tributes that we hear, he, well, we all existed in his orbit. And that's not to say that he thought he was the centre of our worlds. None of us even realised until he was gone how central Rich was in our lives. He brought people like me, people like Lizzie, all, uh, so many of us. He, he, he brought us into his orbit and he opened doors for us in a sport. Well, I mean, I mean actually in any walk of life, people can be very precious about their domains, but Rich didn't want anything back. And maybe it's just because he saw something in us that he appreciated. And that's what I will take away. You know, I, I'll take away from Rich's life that he saw something in me that was of value. And that is something that I'll try and honour going forward. But he did open those doors for us and he didn't want anything back. He just, he just made things happen for us. And, and for me personally, maybe more than anyone, I look through my phone at the moment and look at all the different WhatsApp groups I'm in and some of them professional, some of them are personal, but so many of them have links back to Rich. If it wasn't through Rich, I wouldn't be making a lot of the podcasts I'm doing and I wouldn't be earning a living in the way that I'm doing. So I just, I just wish I could tell Rich how thankful I am for his presence in my life and for how thankful I am for what he did for me and what he's done for others. And the things he's done for me have not only benefited me, they've benefited my my family. So I'll always be in debt to Rich and I will always remember him whenever I ride a bike, whenever I listen to a podcast, whenever I make a podcast, he will be there. And I'm just grateful that I knew you, Buffalo. Dear Richard, well, your final assignment has got me floored. It's simply not possible to sum up all that you gave me in a few short minutes. The opportunities that you carved for me and so many others, the doors that you opened when others would walk on by the kind and reassuring ear that you so generously offered, there never was a bad time to speak. You had the perfect balance of encouragement and belief in people's abilities, whilst being the master at just letting us loose to see what we would create. The on-record chats were always great fun, but it was the off-record stuff which I really cherished. When I could ask you the questions, quiz you about your ridiculously detailed knowledge of everyone and anything in the cycling world. The times that I could listen to you and I could learn from you. Thank you, Richard, for being my friend, for welcoming me in, for everything that you gave to me and to the world. Your cruel and unfair loss moved me to write through a river of grief-stricken tears. And here is what I cobbled together for you and for all those who loved you as the best friend they never knew. 
How does the world carry on when it has stopped for you and us? Do I get upset that they go about their day like the world has not just been shaken? No, because for those whom time has not stopped, have not been fortunate enough to know you, to dine with you, drink nice wine with you, acquaint your friends and learn of their tales, hear the voice that never fails to warm and cheer and tease and teach, guide us on adventures far from reach of those we thought we'd never hear of cyclists quite devoid of fear. The stage that didn't end, a story you once told so well, of shock in one of cycling's tours, a story that should not be yours, but now the meaning is too real, the sense of loss that we all feel for the best of friends most never knew, the voice that carried us all through days and nights, times good and bad, escapades else we'd never have had, loved by those who knew you, adored by those you never knew, but who am I to grieve? Is it my right? Yes, the familiar voice emphatically cries, for the cavernous depth of loss tells us not of what is gone, but that of which is left behind. Shall we leave it there, folks? Let's wrap things up. As now for you, the time has come to ride to the moon and on to the sun. Now we're going to hear from three of our more recent contributors, Kate Wagner, Mitch Docker, and Brian Nygaard, who featured in our Grand Tour coverage last year. The Slovenian poet uh, Sreczka Kosovel wrote a poem that reads as follows. Be a lamp if you can't be human, for being human is difficult. A human has just two hands, but he should help thousands. So be a lamp by the roadside, shining on a thousand happy faces, shining for the lonely, the aimless. Be a lamp with a single light, man in a magic square, signaling with a green arm. Be a lamp, a lamp. A lamp. Richard Moore was an absolute lamp, not only for me, but for so many others in cycling, especially in uncynically female writers and journalists. There are not enough words to describe what a profound gift it was for me to have been included among such a list of people. Last year's tour with Richard was one of the best experiences of my entire life. He was a brilliant writer, bon vivant, conversationalist, epicurean mentor and friend. My life without his brief presence in it would have been as dark as Kosovo's lampless street. I will and do miss him tremendously. Richard was remarkably kind and supportive. He helped me through my first reckonings with doping, helped me learn how to be a journalist on the job, introduced me to his colleagues, to writers and staff, and treated me as an equal, even though I was still a novice. Even though Richard is gone, I will carry his faith in me wherever I go. My sincerest hope is that I will do him proud. I wanted to add also some uh, Richard memories. Um, one of my favorites is that we were watching the finale. We were watching the European Championships, uh, football championships, all throughout the tour. And we got kicked out of this little bar or like our hotel and had to, had to like go wander through this town to find some bar to watch it in. And it was like pouring rain out. And I remember also when the finals happened, we were in Andorra and like Italy lost and he was so happy. <laughs> um... Yeah, and another, uh, I remember, like, I, I asked him, like, if it was unethical for me to give uh, Matej Mohoric a book or let him borrow one of my books. And he, Richard turned to me and he said, this isn't war journalism. 
uh, it was just, like, lots of, lots of things like that, um, and, like, even when I, when I would bin it, like, when I would bin interviews or bin things, like, because uh, I, I made a lot of mistakes my first week at the tour, it was just my first ever bike race, he was always there to, um, kind of lead me on, back on the right track, support my growth, but he never, like, told me what to do or like he let me figure it out for myself which was which was really necessary um I guess also uh yeah so that was just the kind of of person he was um he uh he wanted me to be myself and wanted me to find my own voice but he was always there to to guide me through that process um and that's what good mentors do um, that's what good friends do. And Richard was a good friend. I got to know Richard when Lionel approached me and Richard too at the Vuelta España and they asked if Life of the Peloton wanted to join the cycling podcast. And, you know, to be honest, it really was a business sort of um, relationship in the beginning. I didn't know too much about Richard. Um, I'd seen him around. I'd been interviewed him by him before and also Lionel. And, you know, I thought they were great guys. Um but it was really when I got the chance over these last couple of years to slowly get to know him, have these conversations, but more specifically, once I went on the Tour de France with him, I really got to know this great person he was, as everyone knows he was. I got that time to spend with him in the car. You know, he taught me what journalism was, what he loved about journalism, following the race on the other side in the mix zone. But of course, those dinners we did, those funny laughs you heard in the podcast, that's what it was like. That's what it was like hanging out with him. And I loved it. I loved being on tour with him. And I thought, wow, this is going to be really special. This is going to be great. If I can touch in with him a couple of times a year and do something like this, this is the way you got to do the Tour de France. And it is a beautiful memory in my thoughts about that time I had with him in July. We had a great time. And it's a real... sad loss to know that he is no longer going to be there at the tour. And we're not going to... We're no longer going to be able to hear his voice in the podcast. I really am going to miss him. The time he gave to me... The time he gave to everyone, his personality, his laugh. Rich, you're going to be well and truly missed, mate. So the first time I met Richard was in the uh, winter of 2009. I was on a training camp working as a um, press officer for Team Sky and Richard was there as a journalist. And we got along really well. You know, there's always this natural separation between journalists and press officers and you're better off I guess mostly from both sides to just be very professional and 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 keep it that way but with Richard it was really difficult because he was a very likable person he had marvelous sense of humor and and what I found out really quickly was it, it wasn't difficult for him to to separate those two things you know when he was at work he was probably one of the most serious and I would say journalists with extremely high integrity, but when he was off, he he was really good company. He was funny. He was he always took an interest to to what you were doing besides you know being at bike races, which was something we had in common. And then you know, naturally, when when you go to the same bike races, you always sort of congregate or, or look for the people you want to chat with because you know to be honest, there's a lot of time where 
where you can do that. And Richard was always one of the people I would I would seek and and find for those talks. And then when the podcast started, it was sort of around the same time. At least when I started to to really take interest in it, and it was when I started working as a journalist myself and and the work around the podcast that Daniel Lionel and Richard did together was huge source of inspiration and an extremely good background knowledge for me in, in both in my work as a commentator but also uh, later on as a writer myself and then last year uh, which was the last time I saw Richard was when I got to spend some weeks with him at the Giro and and there I think I could say that more than anything we, we became friends before we were we had a professional relationship I would say after that we were colleagues but last year at the Giro we became friends and and I'm happy to say that and I'm very proud to say that that's how I'll always remember him as a friend. Well, all the first impressions of Richard Moore, the buffalo, before he was a buffalo. <laughs> he was always a buffalo, wasn't he? Actually, he wasn't always a buffalo. Um, my first impressions, I think, really, were probably the professional side of it. I was trying to remember whether... I met him before reading Heroes, Villains and Velodromes or whether I read it first and then met him. But the professional side of him was a lot larger in my impression of him than it became later, I think. But but at the same time, it's really hard for me now to pull the thread of it all apart and think what he meant to me in the early days because he so quickly became such a part of so many aspects of my life. So... I'm pretty sure I probably met him just before the formation of Team Sky. And obviously he was writing the book around them. Um, but as soon as we met, we became friends. And as soon as we became friends, we started hanging out. And we lived in the same part of London. And we introduced each other to our other halves who were both French or part French. And we loved to laugh at the Frenchness of them, which you're allowed to do when that's your other half. Um but he so quickly became, like I say, such a big part of of every element of my life that that it's difficult to narrow it down to one thing. But when I say that he wasn't always the buffalo, um, I was saying just before we recorded, and I forget this, and it makes sense to me really, but we worked in the Scotland on Sunday newsroom in Edinburgh at the same time, which we only discovered years later um, as we were going through our like sort of potted biographies, if you like, to each other. And it was a real shock to us both. And, and Richard was saying how he couldn't understand how someone as loud and noisy as I am, I guess, um, could have been in that newsroom and he didn't notice. And I felt the same. But then we both we both explored it and we were like, well, actually, we were both really shy at the time because, or at least in that context of being in this proper grown-up newsroom and intimidated by actual journalists. And we both laughed at how we would we would both do the interview do interviews on the telephone and and almost whisper the questions because you didn't want anybody else to hear. And it was just really funny to hear that that his approach was the same as mine, but also that we ha our, our paths had crossed or so very nearly crossed years before we actually met. And to me, that makes such utter sense because, because he became such a huge part of my life that whenever I was trying to remember the first time I met him, I can't, I can't remember because it feels like I've always known him. It feels like I, he's been 
if not always, and then such, such a huge part of my life for such a long time that it makes sense to me that we were in each other's lives before we knew each other, really. And what about you, Rose? Did you know of Richard Moore from the Cycling Podcast before you knew Richard Moore? Yeah, yeah. I think it is, it's, I just find it so interesting to hear that from all about him being kind of shy in a newsroom or, you know, intimidated by anything. Cause, you know, for as long as I've known him, he, you know, he's always been that just like kind of titan of the press room, you know, someone, you know, the cycling podcast, you know, all these amazing books that he's written. And I think so. I can't, I also can't pinpoint a time when I met, it would have been one of those times in the press room when you're kind of hanging around the buffet and, um, you know, meeting all the, <laughs> the people buffet. and reviewing the, you know, how good a particularly Italian town has done on their press buffet every day. It would have been one of those kind of almost seemingly kind of inconsequential moments that becomes so consequential when you, I mean, I can't even remember it, but you know, Richard to me in my life has given me so much opportunity just, you know, coming on the cycling uh, podcast and it seems kind of like a a shame that, I, well, it just seem, it, it doesn't seem like it honours him to not remember kind of being struck by him instantly in one particular moment and be able to remember him so clearly, you know. But also wasn't that the absolute beauty of Richard, that he was so familiar to so pe- so many people so quickly that he that he wasn't someone, you know, his presence didn't come and slap you in the face. He wasn't like that. He was he was a safety net. He was a security blanket. He was someone whose whose very presence I always felt made me feel utterly and entirely safe. And and that for me tallies with someone who just sort of you know pops alongside you in your life. You know, it's almost like you're walking along and you're doing your thing, and then he joins you in your walk and you're you're chatting to each other, and all of a sudden you're friends. And that makes more sense to me than remembering him from a drunken night out or, and there are plenty of those, um, you know, but I, I feel like that's more in, in keeping with who he was. You know, he was this beautiful, big, cosy, reassuring jumper, wasn't he? And you don't necessarily remember where you bought the jumper, but you just love it. <laughs> yeah, I guess a fixture, if not from day one, a fixture in the, the press room and the paddock and the finish line area from sort of day three or day four that's just you know everything he did he's he settled into immediately as if he'd always been there um in in terms of the cycling podcast feminine i mean i can remember him kind of pitching the idea to me in 2016 because 2016 was a big year for us in the sense that we did the giro daily for the first time and we were sort of stepping everything up and during that Jira, he said, I think we should do a women's edition of the cycling podcast. And I'm going to ask Orla, um, what do you reckon? And I was kind of relieved initially that he had somebody else in mind to do it because I just didn't feel I had to, I didn't feel I had the bandwidth, the bandwidth to take it on and do it justice. And I knew that he would have. Um, can you remember Orla when he first pitched the idea to you? Because I'm pretty sure it was a, a done deal, fait accompli, before he mentioned it to me, his business partner. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, um, you know me, Lionel, and Richard knows me only too well, and he only had to suggest something, and I would say yes, and then I would ask him what the suggestion was. So it was probably a done deal as soon as he said, I have an idea, and then and then, and then then I agreed, and then listened to what the idea was. Um, but, but we have, or we had, 
different memories of how that podcast came about. So, um, which we only just, well, I actually went along with Richard's version of it for a long time <laughs> until we did a special episode recently on um, the origins of each of the podcasts. And um, I told my version of events and afterwards Richard said, I didn't know that that was your version. I thought, well, I didn't want to correct you because it doesn't really matter. And I like your version too. Um, but my version was I was driving along um, when we all lived in London and I was driving home from the airport one night. And I remember the particular stretch of... Um, corkscrew windy road that I was on when he called and asked me if I would do this with him um and like I say I've told that story but but what I remember most clearly from that and I remember the the green of the grass I remember the sun was shining and I remember just being so proud that he'd asked me and and that's such a running theme of my friendship and relationship with Richard he always made me feel proud of myself and of our friendship um, and I was so delighted that he thought that little old me could do a podcast with him. And I also thought this is wonderful because it's a chance to hang out with him a bit more. And, and I loved hanging out with him and being his friend and, and getting to, you know, I loved it whenever you guys invited me on to the cycling podcast at the Tour de France, for example. I just felt like there was there I was doing live television for Sky Sports and Sky Sports News. But when I came on the podcast, it was like I'd made it because you guys were like, the business. So whenever he asked me to do that, I was just so happy. Um, and the funny thing with Richard, um, that everybody, everybody who knows him knows, and everybody I think probably who list, who's listening who never met him probably knows, but he just made stuff work. So I didn't once question whether it would work, um, whether there was an audience for it, how we would gather content, how we would watch the races, because there barely were any to be to be seen. Um, so we had to consume it mostly via Rose, the 10 minute highlights that you were putting together for the UCI at the time or the Cycling News website. But I just didn't question it because Richard had come up with the idea. That meant it was a good idea and I was on board. Um, and I knew I would love it and I did. And I used to look forward so much to those episodes, recording them either in my garden in Beckenham at the time and in my head, this isn't since his death, but in my head always in those early days, the sun was shining for every single episode and we'd sit in the garden and I'd bully Richard into trying to do some on camera and try to make a little show out of it and he'd be incredibly awkward and hate it, but he'd do it anyway. Um, or I'd head over to Tooting and sit in his kitchen um, with Virginie sort of milling around and doing the dishes and whatnot until they got their office built out in the garden. But I just always look forward to it because it, I was always catching up with a dear, dear, dear friend and we got to chat cycling. And, I, and, and the other thing that I probably didn't realise until, I didn't realise um, fully until he died, was how much that whole part of my life and the podcast and our friendship has led me directly to where I am now and the life that I lead now. And it's only when he died that I realised how much of my life is because of him. And that's not, that's not because he's dead that I, that I think that. I'm not investing extra importance onto things. But because I was doing the podcast at a time when I wasn't able to cover cycling on Sky... Um, I was able to keep a profile in cycling and an interest in cycling when it might have dwindled otherwise. And because he encouraged me to write 
when I was quite frankly quite a shit writer and I'm not saying I'm award-winning these days but I was quite awful but he still encouraged me to write because he gave me all these other outlets it made me feel brave enough to go freelance whenever the time came it meant that Eurosport came knocking at my door for cycling even though I wasn't covering it really on Sky but because I was doing the podcast um they they knew of my involvement in cycling and that all led me to be able to leave my job and move to Amsterdam so every single part of my life really even now even now is is as a result in some way or other of, of Richard and our friendship and and the pride that he gave me in myself and the confidence he gave me in myself and I think he did that to so many people and just before I ask you Rose about how you came to join the cycling podcast feminine I, uh, the one thing that Richard was insistent on when he was talking about what the cycling podcast feminine would be was that it would be the cycling podcast but about the women's racing not uh, not a sort of an issues led um, you know so basically cycling women cycling is cycling by women not women cycling with you know in inverted commas and I think that distinction came across from episode one and and clearly was something that that you both felt um, but it was such an important one to make right away from the start he was also always really good at bringing that back because the problem with women cycling certainly since we started um is that it is strewn with and bogged down by issues and inequality and um, injustices. And so it's very difficult to talk about women cycling without at least referring to all of that in passing. And it's remiss not to, but but he was he was always the one. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. He was always the one who would, away from recording, bring it back and say, listen, Orla, we've got to remember why we started this. And he would share strategic emails with me from listeners, um, people saying how much they enjoyed the racing over the issues and the, and the platform that, that the podcast gave to the sport and the fundamentals of the sport rather than what it wasn't, which is it's not men cycling. And that, that focus that he had, I think, is, is easy to not, to not realise, I guess, because um, he wouldn't bang on about it. And also... Um, it was something I, I used to get maybe even more annoyed about than he did whenever new listeners would come to the podcast and say things like, why do you need Richard on it anyway? Why do you need a man on it? It should be women's voices. And it would incense me so much because he was the driving force of the whole podcast right until the very end. He wasn't just there. He wasn't a token man. <laughs> he was the Cycling Podcast Femina in the way that he was the Cycling Podcast. And... Yeah, I just think that's really important that people realise that because also that didn't come from um, any sort of, I, I was going to say wokeness, but we use woke in such a negative way and Richard would tell me off for that because woke is a good thing. Um, but it didn't come from any box ticking, you know. He didn't. He wasn't do it, doing women's cycling because it it's the thing to do. It was just, here's a brilliant sport. Let's cover it. Why wouldn't we? Um and that's really, really, really bloody rare still in women's sport to not have the sense of tokenism. And, it, and that was fundamental to his coverage of women's cycling. I mean, he, I think it, he is so knowledgeable about women's cycling. I think that when, when he was getting me to do the 
you know, the lead presenting um, part of it, he was actually relishing the ch- relishing the opportunity to not be the one that's just asking the questions, but to be the one that's kind of having an opinion on the racing because he had so much of that to give. And I think that, you know, sometimes if you're doing the lead bit of it, you're kind of just asking the questions. You don't really get to put forward your opinion yourself. And he just relished that. And I think that was just... So part of his character was embracing change and looking for innovation and progress. And I think that's something that people might not necessarily have, you know, got from him. They might have got kind of that that sense that he was proactive and and uh, a doer, well, a doer and a thinker. I mean, if you can be both, then Rich, Richard was both. He was also someone who just embraced, and I think you kind of... Maybe we've seen it now since we've seen all these tributes of people saying, you know, what opportunities he gave people, you know, what belief he had in new talent, in people who are coming new to the sport, a sport that kind of can be so kind of closed off. And he was always someone looking to, you know, to honour like the history of this sport, but, you know, progress it and and make it better and and. not make people feel like they're excluded from it. Because I think it is such a intimidate, you know, those press rooms, they're kind of intimidate, can be intimidating places, especially if you don't look like, you know, everyone else in those those press rooms. And I think that, you know, Richard was, was always one of those people who would be welcoming, every, you know, would welcome everyone else so openly. Okay, well, how will you remember Richard? I wouldn't have thought that this is how I would have remembered it. Well, I wouldn't have thought I'd have to for a start. Um, But there's just one really strong feeling that I've had since he's died. Um, And it's a festival that we went to, the End of the Road Festival in 2013 or 2014. I can't remember which one it was because we went went a few years. um, um, And we all camped together in this tiny little... Um, Volkswagen California camper van so me and my husband were downstairs and Richard and Virginie were upstairs and it stank quite a bit um, but we um, it was obviously Richard's idea to go to the festival um, because all the best ideas are his and his brother was there and there were other friends there and there was um, like a little comedy stage and we went to um, to see different artists and Jarvis Cocker was speaking and it was just beautiful but my my abiding memory really is um, of Sunset and we were in front of the main stage and Seeger Ross were playing and the sun was going down and there's this most magnificent light show that Seeger Ross had put on above the Dorset skies and it was a beautiful summer's evening and we were just lying on the grass, sort of to the left of the stage, sort of halfway down the field. And I remember just feeling so deeply happy, so happy. And like I said before, when Richard was there, I always felt safe. And it's not something I realised until probably about an hour or two hours after I heard he died. That's what, that's the rug that was taken from under my feet. I realised that he gave me safety and I didn't know what to do without that safety. But in that moment, I felt so safe and that the world was full of potential and beauty and the sky was lit up with the setting sun and the light show. And and I've listened to um, Sigur Ross on a loop since he's died. And once in particular, because um, he was 
he was put to rest with a sort of a very private ceremony um, and I'd been in France just before it and so I knew what the order of service was going to be and knew what the songs were going to be and so I listened to the Sigur Ross track Hoppapolla as I knew it would be played at the ceremony and I stopped in the street and closed my eyes because I, I didn't have time to get through I wanted to be on time because I'm always bloody late um, but so was Richard so that's okay but I stopped in the street and I closed my eyes and the sun came out in this horrible grey wet cold Amsterdam day and the, sun, the, the wind was blowing so gently around me, I was in that field again. And it was Richard's energy everywhere. And it was so peaceful and so beautiful and obviously so desperately, desperately sad. But I felt safe. And so my memory, I guess, of Richard is, is happiness and potential and safety. And fun, because it was always a lot of fun. And that night was an awful lot of fun. Um, so it's not a cycling memory at all. It's a life memory, and that also feels quite appropriate. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney.